Well, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. Uh, good to be with you in the Sunday school hour, and good to be uh, with you now. Um, I did this a little bit in the Sunday school hour, but just, again, would want to um, state that it's just good to be back, and it was wonderful to um, be with you a month ago when we were here and enjoyed getting to know you uh, during our time here. And uh, we even got to uh, meet a member of the Mount Pleasant Police Department on our way out of town. Uh, um, so we just, got to, we just got to meet everybody. It was great. Um, uh, thank you to the many people who have shown us such wonderful hospitality and, and with food and, and being so welcoming of me and my family. And, uh, and again, just a special thanks to, to Dan for uh, just his, his wonderful leadership uh, as, as far as the deacons are concerned with, with uh, the interactions with him and with the, the other deacons as well. It's been great. Uh, he's been a great blessing to interact with. Uh, very thankful for Pastor Matt and Pastor Kyle and being able to interact and get to know them and, and have some lunches with just them and, and myself and... and uh, to uh, to get to know them, so it's just been been uh, a, a very great weekend. It's 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 been good, and we're excited to be here today. Um, I feel like this is a little bit of a, a setup. Not I mean, not only uh, is it candidating Sunday, but it's election Sunday. Uh, if there's ever a time to talk politics, I suppose it's today. So um, so in light of election day, uh, I'll start with the most political endorsement I can make: uh, Jesus is King. And he's the king of kings, and he's the king of presidents, and he's the king of rulers, and he's the king of governors, and he's the king of mayors, and he's the king of nations. And he is in control, even when life is in chaos, which is a perfect introduction to where we're going to be in Ruth chapter 1. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there to Ruth chapter 1. God is in control, even when the world is in chaos, even when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Uh, Judges chapter 21, the very last verse of the book of Judges, before we get into the book of Ruth, are those very words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's how the book of Judges ends. That's the end of the story as far as the book of Judges is concerned concerned. And then we come to the book of Ruth. And what the, the book of Ruth is, is almost a, a, a breath of fresh air into what was happening during the time of the judges. The time of the judges uh, lasted about 400 years, uh, give or take a little bit. Um, and it was, it, was, it was nothing but, but complete disarray. It was, it was apostasy. It was lawlessness, it was gross immorality, it was, it was all these things. And it kind of brings the bright side of the book of Judges, that even in all of that, God, not only is he in control, but God cares. I think we miss that sometimes. Not only is the sovereignty of God means not only is he in control, but God cares. And what we have in the book of Ruth is the story of God's provision and redemption. And we're not going to go over the whole book, but I, 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 uh, I trust you are familiar in some ways with it. But the provision and redemption of Ruth through a man 
by the name of Boaz and how God eventually, Ruth, would end up in the very family tree of Jesus Christ according to to Matthew chapter 1. But we're going to read um, all of Ruth chapter 1 to get us familiar with this and then we'll dive right in. So Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Elimelech means my God is king. The name of his wife, Naomi, which means pleasant. The name of his two sons were Malon, which means sickly, and Chilion, which means pining or wasting away in a sense. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Two sons died, Malon and Chilion. He died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And they, the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite with her daughter-in-law, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest." question of the book of of this chapter, really the book of Ruth is, will we live by faith in a dark and corrupt world? What does it mean to live by faith? It means that we trust God's promises and we obey his commands. Life is so uncertain and we need to be trusting in an unchanging God. God does not want us to live our lives in constant knee-jerk reactions to the circumstances around us. 
Circumstances are constantly changing. He doesn't want us to live in fear or worry over what's going to happen or what is happening. He does not want us to run after other gods and trust in what cannot be trusted. I think throughout scripture, I think there's two main things that people trust in. Uh, Psalm 146 verse 3 says, put not your trust in princes. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse uh, 17. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy? Put not your trust in uncertain riches. Those are probably the two things we struggle with trusting in the most. Power and prosperity. If we don't have the power, we put our trust in someone who will have the power, who does have the power. And prosperity as well. Are those an idol of your heart? Power or prosperity? Throw in politics with who gets the power? And if you would say no, well, what happens when you lose them? What happens when you lose the power? What happens when you lose control? What happens when you lose prosperity? Because that'll reveal a lot about whether or not your idol are those things. What happens when you lose power and control? Just look, look at what happened, happened seconds after Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed to the Supreme Court. You have an entire meltdown of people who felt like they lost the power. What do you have right now going on the other side of the aisle? A bunch of people who want to make sure they don't lose the power. And I've got a feeling if, uh, if things are flip-flop or if things were the other way around, it'd be the same thing. We have a bunch of people who want power, and they don't want to lose the power. They want to be in control. They want to make the decisions. They want this, 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 and this. And I won't comment any more than that. That's going to drive some of you crazy. Uh, what about you? What happens when you lose control, when you lose power? When your family starts falling apart, you just don't know what to do. What happens when you lose the prosperity? I mean, how many of us do the exact same thing our political leaders are doing? We have meltdowns, and we're just, we fight and fight and fight God to try to get the power back, to get control. But the gospel calls us to surrender any perceived sense of self-sovereignty, because we don't have any, to the one who is actually sovereign. It was a chaotic time in the, during the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. These 400 years of violence, apostasy, lawlessness, and gross, deep immorality. And so as a result, if you know the book of Judges, God would send a neighboring country, a neighboring nation, and they would come and they would suppress and oppress Israel. And eventually, Israel would cry out for help, God would hear their cries, and he would raise up a judge, which is kind of kind of like a temporary king, an interim king, if you will, uh, a leader to lead the people of Israel to fight back against their foes, and then God would bless them, and then we'd just go through the cycle again. But the world was in chaos, but God was in control. Um, and so today I want to look at three principles for living in a chaotic world. Three principles for living in a chaotic world, and I think you have them, uh, the main points in your bulletin there if you have one. Three principles for living in a chaotic world. Number one, beware the danger of greener pastures. What's a greener pasture? It's a common phrase you hear today. Very simply, it's something that is uh, something something that's better or more promising situation. Like over there, 
Outside of this situation, anywhere but here, there's a better, more promising situation. You, you may do this with your marriage. It doesn't have to be moving location. You may say, there's a better, there's a better husband, there's a better man, there's a better woman out there for me. My marriage is, isn't going good. There's greener pastures if I were just to leave this one and go start a, a different one. It could be something maybe even not that, uh, that severe, maybe even something with a job or where you're at in life. I'm not saying it's not okay to change jobs or move locations. No, nothing wrong with that at all. But what's the motive? Are we looking for greener pastures? Are we just looking at our situation and saying, this is tough, this is bad? And again, there are times where we need to leave tough and bad situations. But is our only motive, man, there's a better, more promising situation? Are we losing sight of who God is? Because the thing about greener pastures, which is what we find in verse 1 to 5, is we are normally drawn to them by sight and not by faith. We're normally drawn to them by sight and not by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. What does it tell us? We live by faith and not by sight. Now again, there's a lot going on. Not only was it during the time of the judges, but there was also a famine, like we read about. There was a famine in the land. Um, now this could have been, we don't know why. Normally when God sends a famine, it was normally out of judgment. Or this could have been a famine where, I think in Judges chapter 6, um, God sent the Midianites towards them, and they would take all their food. And so, again, another way of judgment, except the Midianites would take all their food when everything's got ready. So many commentators believe that this famine was a result of God's discipline, and not just maybe a normal, a normal natural famine. But there are times when, by faith, we have to leave. Moses, remember, Moses left Egypt. But here's, here's what I'll say. I think normally in Scripture, when God calls somebody to leave where they were, it normally wasn't to a better situation. Anybody remember Joseph when God sent him to Egypt? It wasn't the greatest. Abraham, remember what he said to Abraham? He really didn't say anything. He just said, get up and leave. And eventually I'll tell you kind of where to where to sit things down. Jesus, remember Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests. He says, this would-be follower. Because I, don't, I, don't have, I have nowhere to, to lay my head at night. Peter would eventually tell Jesus in the Gospels, he said, we've left houses and lands. The Apostle John got sent to an island on exile. Normally when God calls us away from something, when he calls his people away from something in Scripture, it normally wasn't for um, necessarily a better situation, but it was a situation where God could get a hold of them and use them. We gotta live by faith and not by sight. We tend to ask, how can I get out of this situation? We should be asking, what can I get out of this situation? What does God wanna do in this situation? First Peter chapter 1 talks about the fiery furnace that refines us. This is chapter 1, so that at the result of all these fiery trials that come into our lives, it may be found to result in praise. I wonder how much better worshiper, how much of a better worshiper I would be if I wasn't so quick to run and I just sat and waited and see what God would do. What drives your life? What drives your life? Is it faith, confidence, that assurance of who God is and what God has promised you through Christ? 
or is it sight? Life would be better somewhere else. Outside of this marriage, outside of this family, outside of God and what God is doing. I mean, the psalmist struggled with that in Psalm 76, I think, um, where he says, man, I look around, everybody else is, they're just living a happy life. And here I am, I'm a Christian and I'm struggling. What, uh, what's leading your life? Do you know who God is? Do you know what God is doing? Or are you looking and saying, man, if I just had a life with more money is better, a life with more power, more acceptance, more comfort, a different spouse, better kids, nicer things, bigger house, nicer car. And you're just starting to believe the promise that life is better with those things. Who's making those promises to you? It's not God. Satan himself, just like in the garden. Hey, you want to know what the real stuff is? I mean, yeah, you got all this. I mean, you got infinite blessings everywhere else. But you want to know what the real stuff is? You want to know what the real good stuff is? You know what the best stuff is? It's right there in the middle of the garden. The very things God said not to touch. Um, I've been leading a, a men's Bible study, and we're going through a book by Patrick Morley called How God Makes Men. And it goes through different men in the Bible, from Abraham to Gideon, David, um, and then in through the New Testament with Peter as well. And it just goes over and it just talks about what God did in those men's lives to shape him and make them into how God wanted to make them. And uh, one guy uh, that's part of this group, I love, I love our men's group. It's raw, it's real. They're guys who are saved and they're growing. Um, but one guy in our group, he was saved in his 30s um, after... Uh, going to, uh, he had earlier gone to Marine boot camp and was in with the Marines and doing a bunch of stuff, and he was saved. Uh, and he married a woman that claimed to be a Christian, but she ended up cheating on him, and they got divorced. And in our in our Bible study, he he said, I I haven't told anybody this except for one other person. But he said after that happened, he said I I just completely lost it. He said I I can't even tell you how many girlfriends I had uh, the three years following that divorce. Um, and they weren't, <laughs> they weren't relationships centered at all around anything pure, purely physical. And he said the next three years, those in and out of relationships, he would lose count of the amount of women he had been with. He said until one day the Holy Spirit convicted him, and he realized he needed help, and he confessed to a pastor at our church. He got counsel, he got involved in the church, and he eventually got married to a very faithful and godly woman, and they're happily and faithfully married today. But that's just, that's just a great illustration. His life is a great illustration of this quote from Patrick Morley's book, and here it is. God will not force you to revere him, but he will make it impossible for you to be happy until you do. God will not force you to revere him, but he will make it impossible for you to be happy until you do. Now, I wanna, we want to stick with the scriptures here, because where am I getting this? Elimelech left the land of Israel, and he went to the land of Moab, because there was a famine in one land, and it looked better in the land to follow. And we could, at least in a sense, like this is a guy who wants to provide for his family. I think there's... There's a couple issues here. I want you to notice a couple things. It says he went, in verse 1, it says he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And if you notice as you continue uh, to read on, as they, they went to sojourn in the country of Moab, 
and they went there, and it says they remained there. Went there with his two wives from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Verse 2. It went from sojourning to remaining. Here's the things about greener pastures. They normally take us further and keep us longer than we intended. The name Elimelech means my God is king. And we have to wonder if that was truly him submitting to God's kingship when he left Israel to go with Moab. I mean, Moab, after all, had it made. They had food. And he placed himself right in there. It was about a 50-mile, I think if I remember, it was about 50 miles from, uh, from, from Israel. So not very far, but it was out of God's presence. That's one thing Moab had. They had all the food, all the sustenance, but it didn't have God's presence, which made this so, so much, a little bit of nonsense that he would leave. The move to Moab is concerning. God's presence was in Israel. That's where God met with his people. And secondly, Moab was, if I could put it this way, it was on the do not fly list uh, from God himself. Moab was one of Israel's oppressors in Judges chapter 3. They brought, the Moabites brought great sin into the Israelite camp in Numbers chapter 25. And they were banned from being a part of the congregation by God himself in Deuteronomy chapter 23. And here he is leaving that to go to Moab. Some commentators say if this really was judgment from God, he probably should have stayed there and done his part confessing and repenting along with the other people. But greener pastures often take us away from God's blessing and they take us into enemy territory. And his two sons end up marrying Moabite women. But even again, we're seeing God work even through that. But they often, greener pastures often turn into our darkest valleys. Safest place to be is in the will of God. He will not ask you to stop the famine. He will not ask you to change your circumstances He will not ask you to change the nation. He will not ask you to defeat your enemies on your own. What's he going to ask you to do in Psalm 46? He's going to ask you to just be still and know that he is God. Be still and know that I am God. I think one of the best things we could do right now in 2020 America is be still. If we can make it five minutes, it's at least five minutes, right? We just be still. Fathers, I think some of the best things we can do for our families is just be still and just bring our family around the word of God and know that he is God. I don't do great with masks. I don't like wearing them. Um, I, I submit and comply, and I'm for them, and I get them. I'm not saying I'm against the whole thing. I just, I don't do good. I'm worse, I'm worse than my kids. I fidget with them a lot. I can't stop touching them, pulling them down to breathe, and I'm putting them back up. My kids do great. My kids actually correct me uh, when, uh, when I'm not doing good with my mask, but I'm, I'm terrible at it. And uh, I just, I'm constantly fidgeting with them, and, and, and it's, I mean, I act like I've got this plastic bag over my head, but it's just really this, this breathable mask and all these things. Just constantly fidgeting. I wonder how many of us are just constantly fidgeting with our lives. 
It's constantly fidgeting, trying to adjust our life so it's suffer-free. We're just constantly fidgeting and, and squirming and trying to get everything to line up just right. We've got to beware of the danger of greener pastures. Warren Wiersbe said, Elimelech ended up exchanging one famine for three funerals. Beware the danger of greener pastures. Number two, cling, cling to God at all costs. And this is in verses 6 through 18, and we're not going to take the time to read it. Cleave to God at all costs. We tend to focus on all the problems around us, and we don't really focus on the problem inside of us a lot, do we? Our own sinful heart, our own sinful problems. So here's what happened. Naomi hears that the Lord had visited Israel, which God did a lot. And she heard that there was food. And so she decides, well, let's go back. And so her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, go with her. But along the way, Naomi says, let's stop here. You, You two need to return to Moab. You need to return to Moab. Don't go with me. There's, there's, it kind of shows you a little bit how, how much of worldly thinking infiltrated Naomi, Naomi's mind. Don't come back to Israel where God has visited his people. Go back to idolatrous Moabite where you'd be in a godless, idolatrous country and you would end up under God's judgment, but at least you would have husbands. And so she urges them, return, go back, don't come with me. And I want you to notice the response of both Orpah and Ruth, because there is a world of difference. They look similar, but there is a world of difference between the two. Now, Orpah and Ruth, they both weep. They love their mother-in-law. I think this passage Side note, I think this passage has implications for how we should treat our in-laws. So uh, whoever has in-laws, if you have a mother-in-law, learn from Ruth and Orpah. Love your mother-in-law and get along with her and be kind to her and serve her. Um, Somebody needed to hear that. Uh, And so um, Naomi's urging them and they're weeping because they love her. And the difference in response is an eternal difference, isn't it? Nobody told the daughters, it's going to be an inconvenience for you to come back to Israel. It's more convenient for you to go back to Moab. And Orpah, that's all she needed to hear. She kissed her mother-in-law with a kiss. She walked away. She was not ready to leave Moab. And so she departed Naomi with a kiss. A true, loving, genuine kiss. But she wasn't ready to leave Moab and she wasn't ready to leave the world. And she ends up leaving her only hope. She went back to her people, her gods, her security. And she gave up going to the one place I'm not saying just by being in the geographical area of Israel, that's what would have saved her. But she ended, up, she ended up rejecting going to the one being, the one God who could save her. 
It reminds me, uh, go to Luke chapter 9 in the New Testament. It reminds me of Jesus, the encounter he had with would-be followers. Uh, Luke, chapter, Luke chapter 9. Let's look at this passage. Luke chapter 9. Verse uh, 57 through 62. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse, in verse 57. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. To cleave to God is to leave everything behind and trust Christ And maybe you're here this morning and maybe even have an affection for Christ. Maybe you have some sort of emotional response to Christ. But you have not considered him worthy of rejecting everything this world has to offer. You have not considered him worthy of making him your greatest treasure. You have not considered him worthy as being esteemed as much more highly exalted than money and security and the things of this world. Unlike Naomi, we say to you here, we don't want you to go back to the world. We want you to come to Christ, the crucified and risen Savior that he redeems and rescues sinners. And your invitation today is to come and to reject the world, forsake the world, and come and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Because that's what Ruth did. Ruth embraced what God had brought into her life as an act of mercy, and she submitted to him as her God. And that's what she, those are the very words in verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth had a completely different response. There was a a determination, a confidence, a resolution. That faithfulness, that she wasn't going to leave her mother-in-law, and she wasn't going to walk away from God. She was going to take God as her God. And so eventually, Ruth, she literally had to say to her mother-in-law, quit urging me to go back. Quit telling me to go back to Moab. I've got my eyes fixed on the promised land, and that's where I'm going. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to trust God's promise. And if you place your faith in him, he'll forgive all your sins. And he's preparing for you a city. The very builder and architect is God himself. Its foundations do not crumble. It'll last forever. That's God's promise to you. She was going to take God as her God. And guess what else she was going to take? Her pe- God's people as her people. So 
loving the people of God is not a requirement to be saved, but it is an evidence of it. Maybe you have the mindset of, well, yeah, I would follow Jesus, but I want nothing to do with other people who follow Jesus. I would love God, but I want nothing to do with the church or, or other people who claim they follow God. That's just not a biblical understanding of being part of the family of God. It's kind of like the old saying goes, to live above with saints we love will certainly be glory. To live below with saints we know, now that's a different story. God was going to be her God. God's people going to be her people. Think about the two. Orpah got a lot better of an earthly situation, at least the start. But Ruth received a lot better eternal situation, which is why it's worth it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet he loses his soul? But eventually, Ruth's situation would greatly improve, which is, which is why the last, last uh, little phrase of this verse, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Oh, if they only knew what God was going to do with that timing. But you can't have the best of both worlds. You just can't. You can't serve God and money. You can't love God and love another master. You can't have the, boast, the best of both worlds. You cannot have two masters. There comes a point of decision where you say, I'm going after Christ and I'm going after him with all my heart and full determination. He's mine. Or you say, I don't want Christ. I want the world and all that it has. That's what Orpah did. We have to say no to the fleeting pleasures of sin and go after Christ. I would say this for Christians. Are you inviting people to go to heaven with you? Or are you pushing them away? Maybe you're not like Naomi, who's literally saying, no, enjoy the world, stay with the world, all the pleasures and security that comes with the world. But are you inviting people with you? Are you cleaving to Christ as much as Ruth was clinging to Naomi? What has a hold of your heart? Even as a Christian, is it the world? We all cry out for revival. Christians always crying out for revival. And we need revival. I think so often, though, for Christians, our, 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 our idea of revival centers so much on better circumstances. Revival is not a certain outcome of an election. It's not revival. We're saying, man, revival, we need revival. And man, if we can just get a new president, if we can just find a cure, if we can move away, if we can get more of this, less of that, whatever it might be, man, we'd really experience revival. Everything will be Okay. Someone once asked uh, British evangelist Gypsy Smith how to start a revival and replied by saying, go home, grab a piece of chalk, go into your closet, and on the wood floor, draw a circle. Kneel down in that circle and then cry out to heaven for God to change everyone inside that circle. 
And if God does that, revival has begun. Many Christians aren't really looking for revival. They're looking for release from the troubles of this world. That's my heart. Man, I'm so often I'm looking for release from troubles of this world, but I, I dress it up in revival language. I dress it up in spiritual language. But it's not really what I want. Cleave to God at all costs. And thirdly, and finally, determine to praise God for his presence and provision. I think, I've ch- I, think I changed this point. I don't know if it's different in your bulletin, but whatever you want to put it, it's fine. It doesn't really matter. Determine to praise God. The, just the idea. Determine to praise God for his presence and provision. So this is the final few verses here as we, as we uh, wrap this up. Verse 19 through 22. Here we get, a, we get a look into the heart of Naomi in this passage. Naomi kind of saw God as the enemy here. When things got bad, she got bitter. And bitterness is when we're angry at God because he is who he is. I will tell you something. Naomi had great theology. I wish... Christians had the same theology that Naomi had in many ways. Because she saw that this very thing was from the hand of God. No matter what comes into your life, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over pain. He's sovereign over the good and he's sovereign over the bad. Anything that happens in your life, God could have stopped it. He could have kept her husband and two sons alive. He could have prevented the famine in the land that eventually drove them to Moab. She had great theology, but it was selective theology. She was right. God was in control. God planned it all. That God knew every single day. Psalm 139, all the days that were ordained for me were written in your book. She knew that. Good. But it was selective. She forgot about the great hope that God promises. Try about the goodness of God. That God is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love that's repeated so often in the Old Testament. And for us, we get to look and say, man, this story turns out to be one of the greatest stories ever because we, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, we read that Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David the king, dot, 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 of whom Jesus was born. She saw the sovereignty of God over evil and suffering, but she needed to remember that he is a faithful God, not a forsaking God. Charles Spurgeon says, It is a sweet thing to be able to trace the hand of God in our affliction. For nothing can come from that hand towards one of his children, but that which is good and right. If you will think of those hands of which the Lord says, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands, you may rest assured that nothing can come from those hands but what infinite wisdom directs and infinite love has ordained. She was empty. She says, the Lord has brought me back empty. And she was empty. But she had everything she needed for God to fill her up with his goodness and his plan and his mercy and his grace. We have to determine to praise God for his presence and provision. I think there's a sense in which Naomi was also kind of blind. She says, the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Somebody came back with her. <laughs> Did she not? She had Ruth, one of the most faithful women in all of Scripture. A woman of unrivaled faithfulness and commitment. She had Ruth, and she had her God. We are often not as empty as we think. And beyond that, as we mentioned earlier and as this chapter comes to a close, she was there at the beginning of the barley harvest, which was going to be the key timing for what God was going to do in her life and in the life of Ruth. God was going to use it. He deserves our praise for his presence and provision. So as I close, how do you handle the trials that come your way? Do you run like Elimelech? You become bitter like Naomi? Or do you embrace them as fresh experiences of God's mercy and grace like Ruth did? This world is chaotic at times. And at times, your life is chaotic and maybe seems out of control. Good news, it's out of your control. But praise God, it's in his control. So, I want to leave you with this for today. Beware the danger of greener pastures. Cleave to God at all costs. And praise God for his presence and provision when your world seems like it's in chaos. Let's pray. Lord, you are good to us, and uh, so often we miss it. Um, So often look at our circumstances and just want to run, just want to be somewhere else. But Lord, may we be still and know that you are God. Fill us with your grace. Lord, if there's someone in here uh, this morning, they're more like Orpah, where they still just, they love the world, they love the things in the world, the pleasures, the security, even the false sense of security, the false sense of pleasure, the false sense of joy. And Lord, they're holding on to that. And Lord, they're coming up to a point where you're asking them to make a decision to let go of those things and to cling to Christ. Lord, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day where someone who loves this world, you change their heart to love Christ more than it all. Lord, for believers in here whose, whose lives seem like they're in chaos, and certainly our country and world seems chaotic right now, Lord, may you give them a fresh wind of your grace to trust in your promises and in your presence. Help them, Lord, not to bail. Help them not to move until you say move and trust you all through it all. We pray these things in Jesus' name.